Fellow. This is the Fight Back Podcast, hosted by exercise scientist Georgia Berry. Here you'll find a series of honest conversations about martial arts and mental health. My guests and I explore the statement that every martial artist has heard. Martial arts saved me. How and why do combat sports save people? Listen to find out. Everyone, welcome to another episode of the Fight Back Podcast. Today is a very, very special episode for me. I have on my guest and client, Penny McKay. Penny is an advocate and diversity inclusion advisor. She has qualifications in psychology, disaster recovery, gender and development, and she is currently completing her master's in women's and gender studies at Flinders University. She is also a graduate of the Fight Back Project, which is why this is so, so special for me. So after spending or after studying nursing, working in the field uh, for several years, Penny studied psychology and she supported vulnerable young people living out of home care. She facilitated an Australian first therapeutic group program supporting women who use force, including women in prison and had a leading role in coordinating a holistic support program for all Victorians impacted by Black Summer bushfires. Penny has guest lectured at University of Michigan, and she received a Chancellor's Chancellor's Commendation from Flinders University for her graduate diploma of Gender and Development. Penny's an absolute superstar. She currently advises health and well-being organisations on best practice to support people with diverse genders and sexualities, And very exciting, she is currently building a platform to empower people navigating domestic, family violence and sexual assault. Now, Penny has lived with extreme violence. She grew up in a cult. She experienced and witnessed every kind of abuse and multiple sexual assaults as a teenager and adult. And she is now passionate about connecting women and people who have experienced violence with their bodies and reducing stigma and improving support for people who have navigated intimate partner violence. So Penny approached me to ask if she could come on the Fight Back podcast. I want to make it really, really clear that um, I did not approach her and I don't approach any of my clients. For any of you listening, you will never be pressured to come on and tell your story. Uh, But for Penny, we were like, she said to me, you know, I really want to come and share my story and hopefully it's going to help some person in some sort of way. All right. So this is Penny. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Penny. I use she, her pronouns. I'm joining from Wurundjeri country today. It's such a pleasure to be here and um, yeah, can't wait to, to chat on the Fight Back podcast. So excited. So um, as people might have already alluded for themselves from the introduction that I gave, uh, Penny's story has a number of things that might be triggering for you, that might bring up things for you. So please be aware that there are lots of support networks available to you and we will link those in the comments to this. But also hold space for yourself and your feelings and listen to this podcast, you know, taking breaks or choose not to listen to it if it's going to be too overwhelming for you at this point of time. Okay, but 
all that said, like I, like I said at the beginning of this episode, like Penny has done so many incredible things in her life and she is going to do so many incredible things still yet to come in this space of helping other people recover from trauma and heal and, you know, live through all these crazy different things that we get exposed to in this world. And so we're going to start at the the more dark stuff. We're going to go through Penny's history and then we're going to get into talking about all sorts of different topics. And Penny is honestly a wealth of knowledge about all things. She's such a unique guest for this show because she has experience in so many different areas. So let's get more to you talking. Like I said, this is going to be a podcast (laughs) more from, from us hearing from you. Let's start with your story. Can you talk from childhood up until you found the Fight Back Project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess um, in, in terms of childhood trauma, like I, I grew up around a lot of male perpetrated violence, um, also within a cult uh, that really heavily subjugated women. So um, I guess when I say that to people, it's often um, a shock. Um, the way that I view it is that I grew up uh, basically as an expert in navigating trauma from a really young age um, in how to mitigate conflict to avoid violence. Um, and when you're um, subject to those high adrenaline situations um, from such a young age, um, you know, there are some really, I guess, positives that can come from that as well. You know, you are more compassionate, you're more, you're caring about people, you notice the little things. Um, it's, it's not all bad. Um, but I, I guess, uh, you know, sitting on tenterhooks, walking on eggshells, like all those terms are really familiar for people who have navigated pretty extreme violence. Um, I remember even at sort of age five that how heavily the back door would slam would be an indicator of, you know, what I needed to prepare for Um, and also just uh, witnessing and experiencing um, pretty extreme violence um, towards the women in my family. Um, There is really interesting research that actually followed um, pregnant women around 9-11 as well, Um, just, I guess, highlighting the impact of um, women and and mothers um, living with trauma and the impact on their children and their babies. Um, So quite an interesting study, but it basically um, examined the women who had uh, been pregnant around 9-11 and it showed that they had quite low cortisol um, and then their babies also did. Um, So it was almost like a transmission of, of trauma between mother and child. So, um, you know, when we look at that sort of thing and we look at that transmission intergenerational uh, impact, um, it really does tell us a lot about how we connect to each other, but also how we can heal. Um, It's a complex topic. I think we're a lot more than our labels. There's a a lot of um, really promising data around um, neuroplasticity, which I know is a (laughs) favourite of yours to delve into as well. Um, But I guess growing up in that environment, um, especially through that uh, initial development stage, that zero to seven stage, um, meant that, you know, I was always overactivated in terms of um, fight or flight, freeze, fawn, all of those states that are, you know, meant to protect us, keep us out of danger. Um, So I I was, I guess, always um, sitting in that really high adrenaline space. Um, you know, we've got our alarm systems in our brains designed to keep us safe, and those 
switches get flicked on and it was um, essentially like mine was never able to be flicked off. Um, and so then you were in there until what age? So I um, basically I was also homeschooled as well okay. until age 14. Yeah, yeah. So there was really, I guess, very minimal um, escape. Um, and uh, it, it meant, again, like I said, you know, being hypervigilant at all times and you're always kind of thinking about your exit plan. Um, you're always jumping in the middle of fights. Um, I found that I was quite fearless of emotional and physical violence, especially in the defence of the women in my family. Um, and so that was sort of my life from zero to 14. Um, and then I was able to go to school for year 11 and 12 at a, a local Christian private school. Um, and I guess that's when I sort of started planning my exit strategy. Um, the I guess most concerning thing is at least thinking back through a developmental lens is that if you're always assessing risk, you're always looking for a way out. You can never really feel safe. You know, you can never be grounded in your body because you're just, that's your your primary focus all the time is just um, how to get out. Yeah. And like, I mean, when we talk about those young years as well, that's like the age where your brain is developing, right? Mm. Your amygdala is developing and the other yeah. parts of your brain are being formed and like so, so much of your, your energy and resources are going to growing the area of the brain that is your alarm system, that is mm. like being hypervigilant and checking on things. And like I can't even imagine what that that must feel like to to not know anything even differently than that and then how like foreign it must feel to to get out like how did you feel when you first left yeah look it was um (laughs) at at the time you know I was just doing whatever I needed to do to survive and Mm. the primary uh reason that I wanted to get out is so that I could get my mum and my sister out as well so um I guess that I always kind of just saw myself as a protector in my family and that's what drove me through but it's it's so interesting you know and it's the same reason that um children and and young children can survive um uh, around uh, really extreme events and and cope and um you know those defensive coping strategies that disassociation that um our brain can kick into it it is really helpful especially when you're living with repetitive trauma over time um obviously the issue is um you know if you're outside of those contexts it, it it's no longer helpful um but you know um if your brain alarm stays on, if you're not able to get in touch with um, yourself in that way, then you don't know any different. Um, I mean, for me, I also developed an eating disorder from the age of 12. Um, that was one of the only things I could control was what I was eating um, or not eating. Um, and within a, a cult that um, subjugates women, obviously there's a lot of body-based shame as well, a lot of control over Um, you know what you're wearing like not being allowed to cut hair or wear like typical men's clothing um, all those kind of things as well Um, it was uh, bizarre thinking back to it um, because other women in the church would like use a candle to burn the um, split ends off their hair instead of cutting it you know I mean the ways that people figure out how to cope are just 
unbelievable. And at the time, um, I just thought that was a bit weird. But now when I say it out loud in this context, like you just realize that um, you really uh, do figure out how to survive through through anything. Um, I uh, managed to leave home when I was 16 by um, sneaking bags of clothes out to my music lessons every week and, and storing them um, and got taken in by this beautiful um, family um, who, ha- who had an idea about what was happening. So I, I did finally get out. Um, I also was probably privy to a bit less abuse than my mother and my sister because I would stick up for myself and I wasn't afraid to get in the middle of fights. Um so, uh, yeah, and I, I think when I did get out, I sort of thought that my problems were solved, mm. you know, um, that it would be like a shiny new life and I just had no idea even that um, sexism and homophobia and all those things existed outside of the cult I'd been raised in, you know, um, but turns out they do. Uh, so I was very young I was very naive and um obviously very exploitable as well yeah I can't imagine how scary it must be like to get a bag of clothes out right and then let go be like so scared that you're gonna get caught and da 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 and then like you're living in the house with less stuff and mm. it's like is somebody gonna notice that this thing is missing you know like and then say something and like the the God, the level of stress associated with that must have been so overwhelming and you were so young. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it definitely was. It was just a constant risk assessment, um, mm. you know. So, um, yeah, and it was interesting because I was really young, but obviously my mum and my sister knew and they just respected that that's what I needed to do and we all sort of just pulled together to get that to happen. And then it wasn't for another few years that I um, got my sister out and then I got my mum out as well. But um, it's just so interesting, I guess, even now thinking about the impacts that it's had to um, just from basically as long as I could remember would just be to figure a way out to survive, you know, um, and to not even consider um, thinking too far ahead or thriving or what that would look like for me because that just wasn't relevant really. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And and what happened then when you got out? Because if you you've been focusing so much on like just got to get out, just got to get out, just got to get mm. out, then you're out. Like what happened? Yeah. Then? Yeah. Well, you know, it's um, it's bizarre because I think especially within um, so for me it was like an offshoot of a Pentecostal cult. Um, so it followed um a prophet that actually preached with Jim Jones. So pretty uh pretty scary um and uh I think that I had never learned moderation and that was really difficult as well so um you either just don't do anything at all because it's forbidden or mm-hmm. you do the opposite right and so for me I was really scared of um of drugs uh, but I definitely wasn't scared of drinking so it was a lot of drinking Um, a lot of um, hanging out with my friends and also playing in bands. Like I was um, pretty heavily involved as a musician at that time as well. Um, And a lot of the drinking was just to numb and not feel my body. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was already pretty disassociated anyway. um, And that sort of helped me feel um, some confidence too, because obviously in terms of social relationships, like you do just have to learn how to be around people. Um, Yeah. 
Yeah, I can totally imagine that. It kind of makes me, I mean, it's not the same thing, but it makes me think of how like speaking a second language, you always feel like you, I, I feel like I can't do it unless I've been drinking. And and I want to imagine like in some way, it's kind of like that. You're just like, I don't know how to speak the language of people unless, mm. you know, that all of my inhibitions and like all of these things that have been dedicated to safety and, mm. you know, doing risk assessments mm. can you know, go down for at least a moment so that I can like feel like I'm starting to make headway with creating a community and fitting in with people. Yeah, exactly. And look, I was really lucky in some ways. Like I, I was connected through music. I did have um, my music teacher and her family and, you know, some other people that wrapped around me. Um, I started uni at 16 as well. I'd finished high school young because I was ahead. Um from my homeschooling work. Um, so in terms of academically, um, I had performed uh, really well. Um, and then when I started uni at 16 after moving out of home, um, it sort of all fell apart after one semester. Um, There's a lot of partying. Um, and obviously that made me pretty uh, socially vulnerable as well and, and sexually vulnerable. So I experienced my first sexual assault at, at 16. Um and my second sexual assault at 19, um, which definitely worsened drinking. Um, and then I started self-harming as well. So um, both of those incidents I froze and, and they were both people known to me um, that I wasn't in relationships with and they were older than me as well. Um, so those weren't really taken seriously by the people I told or the family members I told. Um, and um I wasn't believed, um, also the second time around, which made my self uh, injuries far worse. So a lot of, I guess, um, self-blaming behaviour. Um, and I, I had sought um, some help. Um, I'd started antidepressants after being told that um, I had manic depression, which is an old term not really used anymore, um, but, you know, framed in, in bipolar or under that umbrella now. Um, and there was no assessment of trauma or sort of any acknowledgement of that um but I mean I did I did feel like that was helpful at that point um but thinking back now even just with how far we've come in the last 10 years with recognition of of trauma and and violence and sexual violence um it's crazy to think that that I went along with that kind of um methodology now yeah like and when you when you spoke before about when you were younger being like the protector and feeling like you were the mm-hmm. protector and that is one of the the parts that um I think now in more modern psychology we'll talk about in terms of um within dissociation having like a protector part and a mm-hmm. child part and you know mm-hmm. may, maybe some other parts as well too and that yeah, just being right. like a survival response like a totally necessary survival response like I need to have a version mm. of myself that's a front who can stick up for me to protect me and you know and I have all these other ones to help me in all these other situations that I'm frequently affronted with um the, you know thinking about it through that lens like okay you experience trauma this is normal compared to you have a disorder like there's something wrong with you just I know that still goes on because yeah. like I meet a lot of women who who introduce themselves by their diagnoses now. Um, you know, it's not the fact that, that they've had trauma even. The first thing is that these are these are all my diagnoses. And, and I just think it's so fucked up that, like, yeah. that is the system that we live in that wants mm-hmm. to pathologise surviving. And that's what sounds yeah. like happened to you. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it was just kind of, uh, I think it was also that I'd created this party persona and I was playing in bands and I was a lot of fun to be around most of the time, but then there was this dark side that I didn't um, show a lot of people and, um, you know, I I guess I presented differently to what people expected um, Mm. uh, survivors to present as. Like I was um, eloquent, I was educated. you know, I was functioning really well in a lot of areas of my life. Um, but that was because I was so well practiced at doing that from what I'd been through when I was younger. I mean, you know, we'd make sure that um, clothing covered bruises if it needed to, like everything just had to look perfect on the outside. And so um, that set me up perfectly to be quite high functioning while also, um, yeah, living with pretty extreme uh, trauma. So, um, yeah, I uh, basically it was uh, 2011. I um, attempted suicide after a series of pretty horrible events. Like I'd I'd gotten my mum out. Um, My biological father had been stalking us. Like there was just a lot of stuff going on. Um, I lost a relationship that was really important to me. Um, It was just a succession of really horrible things. And I think basically my window of tolerance just uh, collapsed and I just just couldn't cope anymore um, because I think that was kind of the final um, uh, crusade was to to get my mum out and get her safe and then all this horrible stuff still kept happening. So it felt as if there was just no way out. Um, So uh, after I got out of hospital, I did seek support, but I was told they didn't work with people who had uh, survived rape and I didn't really ask for much help after that. It just felt like a lot of doors were getting slammed in my face, I guess. Um, But, yeah, so that was 10 years ago now. Um, I guess from then I sort of started paving my way back from rock bottom. Um, I weaned myself off medication over that next year Um, and that was the important part. I think at the time it really did help... um, with that recovery and, and mood and whatnot, but obviously not actually digging down into um, the uh, PTSD symptoms that I was having with still being overlooked. It was being treated as anxiety, basically, um, uh, rather than, like you say, just those really normal, understandable responses to trauma. Yeah. I can't. So their, their response was like, we can't help you, but we don't know who else can or... Mm. <laughs> yeah and I mean look things have come a long way like yeah I now hope so. yeah now it's sort of no wrong door policy if somebody discloses something to you in a healthcare mm. setting then you assist them to move towards what they need rather than say no um but I think also like that's another uh point to add to the compassion piece like I do understand what it's like to navigate services and to be too complex for you know um what they can serve you with and and yeah definitely uh never want that to happen to anyone yeah absolutely I think it's a it's a flow on from the the medical model that we had mm-hmm. that initially looked at you know if someone has a broken arm you you know you do this and it's like all very linear and straightforward and mm-hmm. and that you know created the rise of specialists but of course when you first walk through a door you don't work 
just happen to walk through the door of the correct specialist. And okay. a lot of the time it's not only one thing that's that's going on, but I I do agree with you. I think um, even the term trauma-informed just, like, exists now mm. as a phrase and people kind of know what you're talking about. Um, mm. Definitely not as much as they could, but, like, it's it's improving for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's just a lot more awareness, I think, of, um, you know, what that actually means. Um, and, uh, you know, just embedding that and mainstreaming understanding into healthcare services needs to happen everywhere. I mean, I, when I moved to Melbourne in 2014, um, Mm -hmm. the following year, I started seeing an amazing psychologist and I still work with her now. Um, I, I think I just got really lucky that I found someone who was just wonderful and, and worked with me slowly um, and patiently um, just to help me accept that everything I'd experienced um, fell within the parameters of complex PTSD. But I uh, never felt labelled and I never felt um, that that was anything other than, oh, this could be helpful to understand a bit better about what you're experiencing. Um mm. And that was that was really good. Um, I mean, it took us uh, four years to get to the point of going through exposure therapy, um, and that's not for everyone either. Um, I think for me, as someone who <laughs> always intellectualized my experiences, always needed to understand why and really drill down into those um, those processes. That that was that was helpful for me to be able to rewrite the script to dive into that memory and and work through that sexual assault when I was 16 because then that helped me process I guess other events that had happened as as not being my fault as well um you know it gave me a framework I guess to actually understand that and to to rewrite that script and I, I mean the whole idea around exposure therapy um I guess, stems back to um, that regular memory sort of flow through like a grid, um, you know, and we can access them or not and, and that's fine. With trauma memories, they tend to go across the grid and get stuck somewhere in a, like sort of like a dead-end street, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and then they can't go anywhere. They're trapped. They're stuck there. Um, and until we can move them across as more regular memories, they can still um really disrupt your your day-to-day or they can pop up when you don't want them. Um, And so the whole idea is to unstuck them, unstick them. I like unstuck. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we want to get unstuck um, because that reduces our distress. Um, So if we look at the SADS level, like the subjective units of distress um, uh, scale, SADS, sorry, um, then often when people are thinking about uh, you know, trauma memories or they're experiencing flashbacks, like their SUDS level is really high. And then for people who do find exposure therapy helpful after they've processed and rewritten and, and whatnot, the SUDS is very low. Um, so even if you were, say, to go back to a place, um, if you can access that that part um, that has been, I guess, rewritten um, and re-understood, re-scripted, et cetera, um, it can really help reduce distress. So when you say you were like it was really helpful for you to intellectualize your recovery for you it was like I want to understand the psychological scientific framework behind it like you know be able to use all of that language study these things and then put it into practice like you needed to know the why behind what you were doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um I mean I think I think I still wasn't really acknowledging my body stuff 
yet and I, maybe I wasn't ready to and, and maybe that's okay. Um, I think that I, uh, you know, I did want to gain deeper understanding um, but I also am the sort of person that wants to just face things head on. Like I'm quite direct, you know, that's why I was able to jump in the middle of fights and break them up and, um, you know, be the one that would cop a punch sometimes because I, I wasn't scared of that. Um, and so with exposure therapy for me, it sort of felt like I was in a place whereby, you know, I'd worked on a lot of my personality vulnerabilities. Um, I was feeling like I could put boundaries in place with people and all those things that I'd learned in those four years of therapy. So I was very much in like, I guess, a safe place before I did that. Um, mm. it's definitely not something that I would, um, think is appropriate to kind of jump into, or it's not a one size fits all, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's like everything, right? Everything's on a continuum and everyone's at the the part where they feel comfortable to to get started. You know, like I also wouldn't recommend that anyone jump straight into sparring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't recommend to most of my clients that they jump straight into hitting pads. You know, it's like a it's a gradual thing that you you work your way up to, building up skills along the way. Like nothing in life it should be that like zero to 100. And the mm-hmm. effects of that, tend to be not that great on the nervous system long term. Yeah, exactly. Um, And uh, that's so true. And I think that, um, you know, that resonates a lot with the ethos of the Fight Back Project as well, um, to do things at a a self-paced, you know. Um, You can walk through it. You don't have to run straight away and and it's all fine. Um, Same with, you know, um, people's responses, the emotions that come up, like they are all fine, all understandable. And, um, you know, just being able to help people sit with that um, is really really important, I think. So I guess it had been um, really difficult for me to actually understand how to um, understand how to form safe relationships um, because I hadn't had a framework to do so. Um, and certainly some over the earlier part of the last 10 years were abusive. Um, I'd done a lot of work with my therapist, I guess, to um, be able to recognise boundaries, um, to keep myself safe and, and try and I guess, aim for respectful relationships um, as well. And I think I was always just so driven by the idea that I never wanted to be in the position that my mother had been put in. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when some of those relationships soured, I cut them off very quickly, um, which was, uh, yeah, more of, I guess, a response to past trauma than it was on recognising those things to begin with. Um, but I, I did finally land in what I thought was a safe and trustworthy relationship, um, and that was an almost two-year relationship, um, and that uh, partner raped me in our home in, in late 2018, um, and that was, I guess, um, a completely soul-crushing um, experience because it had been, like, quite some time since my previous sexual assault like eight years or so and so I'd had enough time and proximity and distance from that to be able to build up all these other frameworks and you know set up support networks and you know just my window of tolerance was um so different to what it had been when that had happened when I was 19 but in this situation I think like with the whole narrative around intimate partner violence in general um people don't understand or I guess, have much insight into what it's like to be sexually assaulted by somebody that they love. Um, And, you know, what 
what that actually looks like. Um, like I didn't leave for six months. I didn't report to police for a, a year. Like I, I was completely dissociated throughout that six months after. Um, and I regressed quite heavily. Um, I just, yeah. And, and when I did leave as well, after I confronted him, um, I didn't feel safe anywhere. I didn't feel safe in my body. And it really felt as if somehow I should have known or I should have um, been able to preempt this because it was on me for trusting someone and feeling safe and then not being, you know, um, and no one around me really understanding that either. So it was a, a really, uh, really hard journey to be able to put all the puzzle pieces back together. Um, like I, I had to stop working in family violence altogether. Like that was the end of the time that I could support people um, within that sector. Um, yeah, so that was pretty devastating. Yeah, and I think um, the stats in Australia are what, one in four. Yeah, one in four one women in four. will yeah. experience um, intimate partner violence, and like huge, nobody yeah. talks about that. Like mm-hmm. nobody thinks that like the stats. Uh, the people that I talk to will be like, nah, the stats are exaggerated or like if anything, they're probably under-exaggerated they because are, of how yeah. few people report, um, mm-hmm. you know, or like, you know, whatever, all the crazy narratives that uh, it persist within within our societies. And, you know, like when you're in a state where you're just trying to survive, you know, like you're not leaving because your risk assessment's thinking like if I try and leave, am I going to be believed? And if I'm not believed, what is that going to mean for me in response? Am I going to be punished? And using, you know, not taking that into account when going like, oh, it mustn't be real because, you know, she waited. She didn't report Mm. at the time. She didn't show up at the police station with the black eye. So, like, if it's not exactly like that, then there's nothing that our justice system can do which is what mm-hmm. happens a lot of the time. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. we'll get to the end of your story, but, like, yeah, no wonder why people don't come forward. Like, no wonder you don't come forward. It's not It's not just a, a safety thing that your body is conjuring for you that is based on, like, the, the physical experience, but it's based on what you have experienced in the past in terms of the narrative and the responses from other people around you that makes it feel not safe as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think also just because um, I was, you know, I was around heightened male aggression at that time. And, you know, I, my first response was just to try and make everything okay, because that's what I grew up doing. That's the framework of understanding that I had on how to behave when I was experiencing male aggression or male violence or whatever, you know, so um, that's, that's what I stuck to. I mean, human beings ultimately really just want to stick with what's familiar with what they know. And if that's unsafe, it doesn't necessarily matter. We we really just try and uh, stay close to familiarity, even if it's, if it's bad for us really. Um, But yeah, when I did speak to police, I, um, I realized that it was really important for me to speak with a female identified police officer. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was a really, (laughs) that was an uphill challenge. Um, You know, I I got quizzed on why by male police officers and, um, you know, reduced to tears. And it, it took like 20 phone calls and nine months to get to the point of actually making a statement. It was, um, it was such an uphill battle, but um, one of my dear friends who was also living with um, stage four cancer at the time just said to me, you know, if not you, then who? And I, 
I felt as if it wasn't just about me. It was also about like my mum, my sister, my grandmothers, like all the women in my life who have navigated violence um, mm. on both sides that I I couldn't not once I had started. So I persisted, you know, um, and and that was why I think if I hadn't um, if I hadn't felt that, if I hadn't felt like I was uh, part of, I guess. Um, that cultural shift within my family that maybe I wouldn't have have put myself through it. Um, I mean, it took like another 12 months after that to get through the victims of crime process. Um, They did arrest my ex-partner and identified that I was a victim, but they could not prosecute due to the current consent laws in Victoria, which are being tabled to be changed now. So what do the laws say at the moment? So basically um, what happens is if um, what I was told was that because I was in a relationship with someone and I froze, it can't be proven beyond reasonable doubt that I was not consenting. Yeah. So like, yeah. (laughs) Anyone who's Um, listening who's like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. And look, it's, it's interesting. I mean, Tasmania have had affirmative consent laws for a couple of years. New South Wales have just passed them. It really is up to how we interpret them. And a lot of those responses are socialized, you know, um, it's really down to how lawyers and judges um, prosecute and interpret. And, you know, uh, it's, it's wild that we're sort of relying on, on that kind of measure because it's so subjective Um so, I mean, this may all change with the feminine consent laws and passing in Victoria now, but um, certainly at the time they were just basically saying, like, you know, you can speak to victims of crime, um, but um, this is where we draw a line in the sand. Um, so that was devastating, obviously, um, but I, I did end up persisting through victims of crime and then I had to justify why it had taken so long for me to make that claim. <laughs> Um, even though it was nothing to do with me, it was to do with the the systems and and whatnot and how long that had taken. But yeah, I got there in the end. I just I just knew I needed to do whatever I could do, um, which led me to googling trauma informed kickboxing. <laughs> yes, which we're going to get into in in a second. I just want to make sure that everyone understands what affirmative consent would mean. So, from my understanding, affirmative consent. we would live in a future where um, whenever like a sexual act is about to take place you need like a yes Mm -hmm. you can't just assume that because they're not doing anything they're not saying no that it's still okay if you're in a relationship or otherwise it's you need a yes from the person like they they need to be like ecstatically saying yes I want to do it and in no point if it's murky You should assume no. You should not assume yes, which the way that the laws are currently structured, if it's murky and you're in a relationship, you can assume yes. Is that right? Yeah, that's a perfect explanation. Um, So, yeah, enthusiastic yes is really important. I mean, some of the advocacy that's happened... um, Saxon Mullins recently um, doing a lot of advocacy around this as well. Um, I mean, in her case... um, it was uh, the conviction of her perpetrator was turned over on appeal because um, basically uh, the argument was that uh, even if she didn't consent, the perpetrator had reasonable belief that she was consenting. Um, I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. It's just incredible that these antiquated laws are what's governing um, one of the most underreported, underprosecuted, and most prevalent crimes in our society and that you know, 
for the most part, it flies under the radar. Like we're pretty okay with violence um, against women um, and sexual violence against women and, um, yeah. Yeah, I think for more information um, about that, I cannot recommend highly enough the Trap Podcast by Jess Hill um, Mm. produced in conjunction with the Victorian Women's Trust is a really good um, currently nine will be ten part series that really goes through like every element of the systems and policing and and mm. the societal norms and like all the parts and and all the trauma experienced by all people men and women that like mm. cumulatively have led to this situation that we're in now and I think if you want to learn more about that I would definitely go there absolutely so you googled trauma informed kickboxing. <laughs> I did. Look, I'd always wanted to do kickboxing and um, I was just feeling really disconnected um, from my body, disconnected socially. Like I, um, after leaving, I hadn't even been interested remotely in like any kind of dating or just like human interaction in general. And I thought like, I really need to do something. I need to figure out a way back. I need to figure out how to connect. Um, And I knew that I wouldn't cope, I guess, being in a male dominant dominated environment. Um, I mean, I didn't even feel safe enough to go anywhere on my own, really. Um, Going to the supermarket uh, was a challenge because I was still living in the same area as my ex as well. Um, And I certainly wasn't ready to handle any kind of grappling. Um, So I just Googled kickboxing for trauma and found the Fight Back Project and um, worked up the courage to send you an email, explained, you know, a little bit about me and um, heard back from you straight away. And here we are. So, yeah, definitely one of the best things that's happened. Um, and can you explain what makes the Fightback Project different? Like people say that all the time, okay, it's trauma-informed. Like what does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as we sort of said before, I guess it differs um, a lot because it's self-paced and it can be non-contact if that's what you need. So um, I guess trauma-informed just means person-centred, strengths-based, like frameworks that acknowledge your lived experience and invite people to step outside what you may have constrained yourself to based on those experiences as well while being supported. Um, I think personally that the title does carry less stigma. I mean, a lot of people, um, including myself, don't necessarily self-identify with the terms um, victim or victim survivor um, because, you know, I was just living my life. Um, But it is nice to know that there's acknowledgement there without um, judgment, if that makes sense. So, Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, the the choice element, like the self-paced kind of thing is, like, the the really, really big thing. Like, I wholeheartedly believe that that should be the way that all things are taught full stop. Like, I think all humans learn better in that kind of an environment, but especially in our environment, for me, that's really important. That's what's really different. It's not like, I've got this many years of experience, so do exactly what I say and then become like clone copies of me and da 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 and like, you know, whatever yeah, totally. else might come up from that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess in terms of impact as well, like it really has been quite profound. Like I had such little control over a lot of my life and a lot of the choices made for me. And um, I guess, you know, in the past, I had really just been grasping for control through self-harm and to now, you know, I guess um, use control in a positive way and and be empowered and also empower myself. Um, 
it was really also the first time that I could only focus on one thing, you know, and I wasn't thinking about everything all at once because, um, you know, that's what happens when you're in that reptilian brain, you know, you're, you're not able to, um, think here and now thoughts in be mindful and, and be calm and stuff. You're, you're literally, um, just acting on your survival instincts. But the, in this way, I think I just started to reconnect to my bodies in ways that I didn't even know existed. I knew I could, I guess, show up, be safe, and that I wouldn't be rejected for asking for what I needed, which is really, really hard. I mean, people who have navigated trauma often just can't ask what they need at all. Um, and that's why we need dedicated spaces to just normalise trauma-informed environments, like you say. Um, it's really important to, I guess, set that precedent and to, to mainstream it. Yeah. And when you say it was like a new way to connect to your body, like what did that feel like? Like where did you feel that in your body? Oh, wow. Good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely just like punching and kicking and um, but also like I just I felt it a lot like in my heart, I guess, if that's, Mm -hmm, it sounds mm -hmm. sort of um, super spiritual, I guess, which I don't really err on the side much of, but I had always felt, um, especially when I was, um, you know, just navigating all of this wild shit that my heart was heavy a lot of the time. And it just, it made it feel a lot lighter, which was really lovely. I don't think that sounds silly at all. I think like people can resonate with that and different people's bodies feel different. Like, yeah, for me, when, when I feel happy, I think I feel like a hum that'll be like more higher. But whereas when I'm feeling really anxious or stressed, it's like, it's always in my stomach, like my stomach and my throat, Um, you know, like I'm like, I go to here and then like when I'm more like calm then I'll come more into, into around my chest and like, yeah, Mm. like around my heart area. And, but like, it's different for everyone. And that's beautiful too. I think it's just like thinking and identifying that, which is like what we do in class right like where where do you feel this how do you feel this what's going on here is practicing doing that yeah and even just the body scanning and and whatnot that we do and um yeah all all super helpful I mean even um though I had quite a bit of training and being able to I guess like you know hack my uh, responses and being able to, you know, if I was starting to feel my heart rate go up to, you know, start practicing breathing and to sort of self-manage quite well. Um, this was a whole other level because if you've been punched or kicked and um, you're practicing that yourself, um, it's just a, a completely different experience, even if it is just the air in your lounge room, because we obviously had to jump on Zoom because of COVID. It doesn't matter. It totally disrupts like the narrative of what um, strength and empowerment and kickboxing or, you know, martial arts looks like. Um, and that in itself is like a reclaiming space and and your own personal power as well. So, um, I mean, in the lead up to facing my victims of crime, um, assistance tribunal hearing um they got postponed and I had like no information and it was probably just one of the most stressful things that I've been through I had to write this massive impact statement and I got called in front of the magistrate at the last minute my heart rate was literally sitting at 120 ppm like and you know I'm a runner these days it usually sits around 55 you know anyway um but I was doing kickboxing like every day in the lead up to that And it was something that I consistently did every day where I felt present, you know. And so when I sat there on camera in front of the court, 
I knew that I could be in my body and I was able to articulate, I was able to speak, I was able to advocate for myself. Um, And I just don't know if I could have done that. Like I really wasn't even 100% sure I was going to do it right up until the moment um, because really it just replicates those systems of power and control um, that occur in abusive relationships. It's a huge trigger for people who have experienced trauma. Um, But being able to jump online and punch the air in my lounge room helped me get through it. So, <laughs> uh, so we we got him around initially, but when you were first telling the vocat judge about that, you know, you wanted funding to have done trauma informed kickboxing, his initial response mirrors, I think, the kind of common response, which is like, but you know, you're telling me that you experienced violence, and now you want to go and do kickboxing, which a lot of people attribute to violence right so how do you explain mm-hmm. to people that it's like no actually kickboxing is a great thing for trauma survivors to engage with or however you want to identify mm-hmm. the term yeah sure look exactly what you said it's a really common misnomer about um what recovery looks like using i guess body-based processing in general and that that will trigger people um that was certainly his line of thinking um And in my experience, I guess, like avoiding being triggered is not an option for most people, right? Like people are getting triggered anyway. They're just coping in perhaps ways that might be reinforcing that trauma rather than, you know, sitting with it or managing or whatever. And um, having a way to actually move through it and be supported in that space is incredibly empowering. So, um, a lot of people have spoken to this on the podcast as well, um, you know, just in terms of self-confidence, how you carry yourself even when you go to the supermarket can change just through movement, through moving your body in a way that feels powerful for you. And, um, yeah, anyway, so I uh, waxed lyrical about the benefits of this and um, he asked for, like, the evidence base I was talking about and, yeah, we were able to send that to him and that was really important to me um, because I think the most important principle of people navigating trauma is self-determination, right? So people need to be able to choose what serves them, even if it falls outside of that traditional medication, talk therapy parameter. Um, and, you know, again, both those those things have been helpful for me at different points and, and talk therapy is certainly something I still utilise, but it's not one size fits all. And um, if we do think about trauma as, as grief stored in the body, then that helps, I think, explain um, the power of kickboxing and of, um, you know, body-based therapies, recoveries, like whatever that looks like for people. Yeah, the body keeps the score is mm. just like the gift that <laughs> will never keep on, will never stop giving. Like for, for yep. me, I'm like, it's I'm holding it up if anyone's not watching. But it's like it's like my Bible. It's like where am it I? Am? I'm like oh I've God. got it here. My copy's so like dog-eared and tattered yeah. and highlighted and sticky noted and <laughs> it's brilliant, right? We I mean Fantastic. yeah, we call it the trauma Bible basically. Um, it's it's yeah, it's so powerful. It's so incredible and. Um, yeah, I couldn't advocate strongly enough just to to consider um, consider trying. So I want to ask you to explain a concept that I think people kind of know the word of, but they don't really understand, and they don't really understand the impact that that it has on how society has built a system wherein. Um, interpersonal, interrelational violence and violence in general is is just kind of like 
an accepted part of our society, which is mind-blowing. So Mm -hmm. that is the patriarchy. So Mm -hmm. what is the patriarchy? How does it relate to violence? Um, And how does kickboxing help people fuck that system, like fuck that system, (laughs) like change their way that they view themselves in that system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're asking a, a gender studies uh, grad slash student this, so <laughs> buckle in. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because patriarchy really just speaks to a system of hierarchy and power over, um, which is something that we, I guess, talk a lot in more, I guess, more broadly in the field of sociology. Um, uh, but traditionally it's, uh, you know, perpetrated by men it underpins systems that are built by and for men as well um i'm an intersectional feminist and i'm pretty passionate about acknowledging that we live in a really binary world right we live in a binary world with binary systems and binary metrics as well um they don't allow for nuance or certainly diversity um and anyone can enact patriarchy anyone can borrow from that power over structure regardless of gender identity um but it is important to think about i guess where it comes from as well and also the impact on male identifying people and the expectations that come along with that so um, you know, like not expressing emotions and having only one way to present as masculine and, and all of those sort of really toxic things that um, significantly impact um, men's well-being as well. So I guess from my perspective, growing up in such a heavily patriarchal setting, I really just wanted to be one of the boys. I didn't want to be seen as weak. Um, and that's how I viewed femininity. It really was like I experienced a lot of misogyny um, once I left home. And um, obviously that also resulted in a lot of internalised misogyny as well towards other women. Like I didn't really connect overly with a lot of women. Um, That was a a huge struggle for me. I mean, I was sort of trying to side with men and um, that uh, sort of reinforced those patriarchal structures rather than just building respect-based relationships. Um, And I know um, Dr. Alex Channon spoke about this in more depth in a previous episode as well. Like, you know, if um, martial arts is centralised around gender, that doesn't really allow the opportunity for that consensual mutual relationship that can occur um, and all of the the great stuff that can happen from that power exchange. Um, So, yeah, there's a there's a bit there. I'll I'll pause for your comment. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a huge huge topic, and like mm. you could jump in if there's like any bits of this that I get wrong. But I think of it like a binary world to me means like we love to be like all of these things belong in column A and all of these things belong in column B. Mm. Column A things are masculine and column column B things are feminine, and the impact that that has on men um, is. If you do things in the column A, in the masculine column, you are rewarded as a young boy. And if you do any of the feminine things, you are punished. And some of those feminine things are showing emotion, crying, et cetera. And that leads to a trauma around not being able to express your emotions and your Mm. fears and things like that. But then also being like heavily encouraged to do things that are like masculine and Mm -hmm. that reinforces a kind of power over thing and that's how men can get into situations where they only feel safe if they have power and control Mm -hmm. um but that it doesn't have to be 
like men and women kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. also like the um, privileged and rich have power over the mm. less privileged poor, you know, um, white people course, have privilege yeah. over black people. Mm. All humans have um, power over the environment and, and like any power over system leads to total mayhem and like fuckery like really bad things happen in every system where we try to have power over some other part because there is no symbiosis there is Mm -hmm. no working together and like everything needs to be a give and take otherwise that imbalance shows up somewhere negatively and it's kind of this like crazy old human belief it's like if we can control it we can make it better and we will account for all of the things and like we've just discovered so many new things even within just the scientific world that's just, mm. just like maybe we shouldn't think that we are so all powerful yeah, um yeah that like big big zoom out is like to come then back and say generally speaking like the big the key term for for, for me in the space is like power over we think it's okay in our society for anyone to have power over anyone else and it's not yeah No, well said. I would agree with all of that. And look, one of the the main things that I guess um, I was uh, drawing from you is that it really does come down to vulnerability and holding space for vulnerability, which is often um, not popular um, when, for men especially. And like, I'm a Mm. massive Brene Brown fan. Like I've really done a lot of deep dives into the power of vulnerability and, um, and trying to foster that as well. Um, especially for myself, who probably aligns honestly more heavily with my masculine side, um, because of course I do, because I had to survive because I was a protector and, you know, all of these kind of things. Um, but yeah, I holding a mirror to ourselves in terms of how willing we are to sit in the discomfort of the prevalence of gender-based violence and the part that everyone has to play in shifting that is a really difficult thing and it requires people to sit with discomfort and unless you're willing to be vulnerable you're definitely not going to be uncomfortable right so really what we're asking for is people to build on the emotional intelligence piece and to do the work Um, we need everyone involved in this conversation regardless of gender identity because it's quite a binary conversation now and this is the result right so if we continue to do the same thing and expect a different outcome that's never going to actually shift the paradigm um we need to be centering diversity centering complexity um all those kind of things but um i think that uh people who have experienced violence are often less equipped to be supportive of others if they have unprocessed trauma themselves um and a lot of the time people have pretty limited resources to do that as well so if you're um let's just say um you know, a woman speaking to somebody who identifies as male about um, violence and they don't have a frame of reference for that or they haven't ever considered it and and whatnot, um, that can be a shutdown response, which, you know, stops the conversation, shuts down the person who's navigating or survived the violence and, you know, the conversation doesn't even get to begin. Um, but it really shouldn't fall with the people who are navigating the violence to do the work most of the time. Um, Obviously, there's context where that is appropriate, Um, but given how prevalent this is, this needs to be something that is 
relevant for everybody. Um, it's really interesting, you know, like I've done a bit of, of diving into epistemic theory, um, which I guess sort of I, I see as building on attachment theory. Um, and epistemicide is something that happens um, especially for women. So it kind of involves like silencing or annihilating a knowledge system. So it's something that we see globally obviously especially prevalent in First Nations communities and communities mm. of colour. So really what you're doing is you're disrupting the knowledge transmission between women or primary caregivers and children, um, and that results, I guess, in the destruction of ability to trust or to fully engage in social bonding. So if you can't trust your environment and you don't trust, like, the knowledge that has been instilled in you and you don't connect to community, then, you know, that reduces people's capacity to um, be connected and to heal. And, you know, we know that we're social creatures. We know that that's how we improve things. We know that um, that's why groups are, are so helpful for people. Um, so I, I guess um, thinking about that, um, and thinking about patriarchy and how that impacts uh, women spe specifically. I mean, it's used as a weapon of war. That's why they call it epistemicide. Um, if you can destroy women, you can destroy communities. You, it's it's really like a, a very gendered phenomenon, I guess. Um, so there's lots of ways that this plays out in like a a broader sense. Um, but yeah, we we absolutely do. Um, need everyone on board to shift that power over. Um, and I go a little bit more into to power um, when I think about choice and whatnot as well. Like um, mm. a lot of people like to, I guess, imbue strength um, rather than power. Um, they want to see survivors as being sort of strong people and, and that sort of thing, which can be really <laughs> irritating. <laughs> um but I always think, you know, when we talk about power over a lot, but there's essentially four different um, understandings of power um, in, in terms of uh, sociological theory. And th there's power with, so that, like, sense of collaboration, mm -hmm. um, power to, so, you know, you're empowering people's potential, basically, power within, so self-worth. And kickboxing exudes all of those attributes right like you're collaborating you're empowering potential and you're enhancing self-worth and other people which is also self-determination like you know it's the opposite of power over in those three scenarios which is just the best obviously and I think that's the choice aspect of your question as well like um that it's so important I think just to to be able to to reclaim power and, and reclaim space um and to, to have the choice to actually not have to do that constant self-edit, to not have to do that constant risk assessment. And, um, you know, we don't want to enforce those power structures by prescribing what people should be doing who are navigating violence. And, um, yeah, I'll stop, uh, I'll stop there. <laughs> you know, I, I think, like, people might want to, like, play this back again a couple of times because it's, it's, it's a complicated topic, but, mm -hmm. like, really it does bow power boil down to exactly what you said right like power with as in like 
we are training together and like when you do a really good kick I'm like yes Penny like that's amazing (laughs) and like everyone in the group is also like that because like we're not in competition with Mm. each other we're a team Mm. and I think you see that a lot in in most martial arts setting when you train as a fight team even though you compete individually there's Mm. a lot of like camaraderie in that right and then there's like the internal power which comes from like the discipline the showing up the knowing yeah. within yourself that you are getting better and improving and like experientially knowing that you have the power to hit and kick and you hear it you hit the pad like it makes a slap noise you're like wow like okay I have power within and yeah. Yeah. then the the again, we're going to say power, the power that that has for for even on an individual basis to have a model of, I don't have to be in the bottom of a power over model. Mm -hmm. Like you have one model in your life where you say like, I can make affirmative choice. I do have agency, like, and I do have power within and with, um, and I give power to other people too, right? Like my Mm -hmm. teammates and I, you have one model and then maybe you start to apply that a little bit in like some other relationship and maybe that leads to like a conversation with someone or you see something going on that doesn't fit that and you call it out or, you know, you just embody that and then that encourages other people to change around, you know, with you. And Mm. I think conversations like that are so good because it can get so difficult to be like, we're never going to get out of this system, like we're never going to fuck the patriarchy, but it's like we're on an individual level that becomes a collective level if enough individuals do it together. And, like, you can't control everyone. You can only control what you're doing and the people Mm -hmm. immediately close to you. And, like, that's really what I'm trying to do with the Fireback Project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Just, I guess, making space for people to be um, vulnerable as well. Um, It sort of makes me think there's that narrative of the fact that, um, you know, I guess people that identify as women are inherently vulnerable and Mm. that just shits me so much because no one is more vulnerable than anyone else, right? Like people are rendered vulnerable by Mm. society and being socialised that way and gender-based violence and rape culture and all of these things that feed into the fact that, um, you know, people are then rendered vulnerable by those experiences. Um, and that's incredibly isolating as well. I mean, trauma is one of the most isolating things you can go through and it's also all encompassing, right? It's very difficult to get away from it. Um, it can feel really self-absorbed a lot of the time. Um, and I think, uh, something that stuck out to me and the reason it took me years to even speak about this openly, Um, is that I wanted to make sure that I wasn't living in reaction to what had happened and that I wasn't dependent on other people's response to my story around my healing as well. Um, So it needed to be uh, empowering for me so that it could be empowering for other people as well. I know we didn't plan this question, but I want to call this out Um, (laughs) just thinking it is difficult to tell your story on a one-to-one level, right? One-to-one versus to a collective because you have to do that risk assessment. It's like, how this, how's this person going to respond? Like, what am I going to do? If we think about like on an individual level, like what kind of difference that people can make, if someone discloses something to you, like what would be a good response and what would be the example of a bad response? Yeah, for sure. Look, it is difficult. Um, I think something that I've experienced um, a lot and then also seen professionally is that 
people tend to use their own frame of reference to understand other people's experience, right? And so if you're um, disclosing um, trauma to somebody who hasn't experienced it, uh, often they will search for their own kind of meaning and then not be able to say anything or they'll shut down and then that shuts you down and so on. So, I mean, if someone disclosed something to you, um, it really sort of aligns with the principles of mental health first aid, honestly, which I would recommend anyone doing um, in Australia. Um, But, you know, just acknowledging, listening, um, you know, asking people what they need. If they're not sure, that's okay. Um, and then, you know, asking if there's also other supports that they might need and, um, and whatnot as well. So you're sort of trying to stay open and curious, but then also you're not providing solutions, right? Um, so, uh, yeah. And then a bad example would just be saying nothing. (laughs) Don't say nothing. Um, if you're feeling shocked, then that's okay as well. Um, I mean, I think modeling good communication is just something like, um, you know, I'm really glad that you shared with me and, um, I'm just feeling a little bit taken aback right now, but I do want to talk to you about this and, you know, it's fine to create that open dialogue. Um, yeah. Thank you. I think that's really, really helpful, right? It comes back to what we just spoke about, about how if we want change, then we need to learn to sit with the discomfort. And Mm. part of sitting with the discomfort is not shutting down when somebody says something that feels uncomfortable to you. They're disclosing Mm. to you, they feel comfortable talking to you, or like that was a moment where they needed that. And like, it's your opportunity to stand up and do something. Like it's not always um, Mm. physically preventing an assault or something like that. It could be the difference. It could just be could be something as simple as holding space and yeah and saying like yeah. what can I do to help and I think also, questions are safe yeah I mean look people are experts in their own lives right like they've gotten to this point and they've done a pretty beautiful job of just doing the best they could with what mm-hmm. they had right so um you don't need to fix anything um you don't need to to manage someone I mean if it is a crisis situation then again like definitely refer to mental health first aid um but most of the time um you know I'd I'd say it probably wouldn't be so um yeah supporting people that way and and just being human about things is always the most important part I want to ask you as well about the work that you did uh with women in prison who had used force yeah absolutely um I love speaking about this. This is some of my favorite work that I've ever done. And um, this program um, is a US-based program and um, I was uh, lucky enough to run the first Australian pilot. So written by my dear friend, um, Lisa young Lawrence, who's a social worker and scholar in the States at University of Michigan. Um, so the program was basically created in the US to address the gaps detected in women who'd been arrested for using force. Um, Some states have mandatory arrest policies, and that obviously adds a lot of complexity to really complex um, situations. Um, So uh, through an intersectional feminist lens, a lot of it was really just about uh, pulling back the curtain on some pretty gut-wrenching stuff, but mostly just supporting them to acknowledge that many of the challenges that they'd faced um, really just stemmed from unexpressed and unmet emotional needs and, um, you know, a lot of psycho-ed, a lot of um, just support to um, identify what they were feeling. Like all of these women had survived horrific violence in various forms um, and, um, 
yeah, it was just, it was incredible. It was, it was definitely life-changing. The, the whole idea was hopefully to empower them to differentiate between relationships where they could be safe enough to have rec- reciprocity. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and respect, obviously, um, but working alongside Aboriginal women as well who are obviously horrifically overrepresented in our legal system um, was really powerful too and just learning um, from them as well. And, yeah, it was it was overall like a, a, a really um, incredible experience. And the fact that we need a program like this so for for women who used force, which to me kind of represents fight, like if we think of fight, flight, or freeze, like in in response to danger, they have their nervous system even, as if it's like a conscious decision, their nervous system has employed fight as a way to keep them alive. Similarly, like your experience and so, so many other women's experience with freeze, um, mm in our systems it's like well if you freeze then you know you didn't say no and it's like well there's nothing we can do for you and if you fight which you know is kind of the other end of the spectrum um even though they're very like closely aligned if you think about like the pathway nervous system wise Mm -hmm. but we tend to think of them like opposites um again that's not okay like you can can go to jail for that then it's like well what is okay it's okay to run but like how often is it viable to be able to run so it really seems to me like the systems are not set up to to take care of survivors um and Mm -hmm. yeah I think this is really interesting in that like what we're talking about earlier about how like over-functioning or like fight or flight is like maybe um more celebrated like more okay than Mm. freeze but it seems to me like both are pretty discouraged sure yeah yeah I think it's important to to maybe differentiate a little bit there um Mm. in in terms of I guess uh use of force it really was about um yeah often response to violent situations of course um I mean the program that we ran was very much um you know we're talking about alternative ways to using force in the Mm -hmm. absence of needing to use self-defense right so Mm -hmm. we're not talking about self-defense we're not talking about survival but Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily prosecuted that way you know Mm -hmm. um so then there's all of those guilt and shame based um emotions arising from that because people will self-label that way and if that's people's narrative around their own behavior then they can't possibly be like fully engaged and fully participating in their own lives because they've been labeled this way as like a violent woman um I mean there were a lot of cases I saw where I just couldn't believe what I was hearing about you know women living with extreme uh violence who'd been prosecuted so far over and above what some men had been remanded for um, or uh, not remanded for more to the point. Um, So we hold, we tend to hold women at a higher standard, especially when it comes to these kind of crimes. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I can't delve in too much to the level that that we were working with. um, But for the most part, when we talk about coercive control and power and control, what we see in the data Mm-hmm. is that women um, will live with, with long-term power and control and coercive control mm-hmm. and they will borrow from that in a in a more short-term sense. So they might live with, like, extreme physical violence for a long time and then a couple of times they'll punch back and that's when they'll get held accountable. Um, 
So whereas like the more male dominant, like in the, I guess, um, cisgender heterosexual sense at least, um, is more to do with that ongoing, more long-term, you know, power and control dynamic uh, that's consistent and um, sustained over time. Um, so there's there's sort of I guess those those patterns and that differentiation in what we see so far at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of overfunctioning, um, that is more to do I guess with uh, coping strategies. And I mean, overfunctioning is basically just managing someone else's stress in place of managing your own. And, okay. Um, you know, sometimes that can be helpful. Um, sometimes you overfunction for people because that's an appropriate thing to do and that's okay, you know. But I think when it does um, become maladaptive, it uh, really does play out and can be harmful to relationships. I mean, it, it can also depend on um you know, your family, your birth order in your family, um, taking on more responsibility for a younger sibling and and whatnot. So um, I guess overfunctioning is just signing up to um, go way over and above, you know, what you need to do in your interpersonal relationships. And underfunctioning is maybe like really pulling back and, um, you know, I guess it's more of a, a freeze. Yeah. Um, so those those kind of relationships can be really interesting because one can't obviously exist without the other right like you can't have an underfunctioner without an overfunctioner or nothing would ever move forward um but I think for me um it meant that I was the overfunctioner in my family it got celebrated because I was more capable more agile um you know I appeared like I was doing the most all the time um and you know that was hard in terms of what we know about you know imagery of survivorship like those things go undetected and those people go unsupported it, it sort of um it disrupts what we expect survivorship to look like which is very much um under functioning small weak etc um but really they're both uh not great like we should be able to take responsibility for our parts not everyone's and we should look at managing our own stress instead of always jumping in for other people so yeah thank you yeah and for me that makes me think of fawn you know so like Mm. more recently we're adding fight flight freeze or fawn and Mm. fawn being um, for want of a better term, like the people pleasing, the looking around and like externally assess- assessing the situation and seeing like, what do I need to do for everybody to make sure that they're happy so that I'm safe? And all of those end with so that I'm safe. But, you know, you might not see that. And like in all over Instagram and stuff, you see people being like, I'm an empath, like, da da da. Like, I just really feel other people's emotions. It's like, maybe, but you know like <laughs> um. <laughs> I mean that just makes me think of like not understood like how to fill your own bucket first and all that sort of stuff like you're always externalizing that kind of thing and and whatnot but um yeah we won't get started on the path of um overarching toxic positivity <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll, we'll um <laughs> we'll, we'll put that one in a, in a bucket and put it to the side which of course is not healthy but just in the context of the conversation we know how many avenues that ours uh could potentially take but yeah I think it it is it is really interesting and and really important to highlight that like trauma can look like many many different things Mm. um you know a victim survivor can look like many many different things and the way Mm. that people present uh just because it's different to the status quo and I think 
almost especially when it's different to the status quo. And, and you can assume, I think, pretty safely that at that point they've been under-supported just because it doesn't look like what we're expecting to see in a in a society that likes to have like a list of symptoms to like tick off the things and go, oh, yeah, you got the thing. Um, X equals Y, you know, like we, we really do like that kind of things. And, of course, like that's the way that our brains are predominantly wired for too is to to do pattern recognition, Um, but it's not that simple. We're more evolved than that now. And that's why conversations like this are really, really critical to highlight the fact that like, it's not a one size fits all and people look different. People survive different. Yeah, exactly. And look, you're so right. I mean, we are wired for like good guy, bad guy, like black and white, you know, yes, no. And it's hard for us to, to move outside that. Like it takes effort. It takes education. It takes, you know, that extra breath before you respond to anything. Um, And, you know, we do have such a a reactive society in in so many ways. And, I mean, that's why mindfulness-based practice should just be embedded into everything ever anyway. Yeah, what was really hard for me was knowing that despite being an expert um, in trauma and having worked in frontline services, having worked on crisis lines, having, you know, worked in the community, it didn't matter. I I wasn't immune to needing to process my own trauma um, uh, within my own window of tolerance in my own time and and needing that support. Um, And, I mean, I think that what I had built up my whole life was that I would get to a point where this was no longer relevant, right? And I had kind of thought, oh, there'll be like a critical mass point that I hit where this won't kind of um, impact my day-to-day. And there was a lot of grief that I had to get through to realise that, you know, I I am a whole person just as I am now and that's fine and this will be something that I continue to manage for the rest of my life and that's also fine. Um, but, yeah, that's a... a a long road for for many people um and i think like you know doing programs like the fight back project or um you know other trauma-informed martial arts programs as well um can offer people that step up to be able to to realize that you know that there's a way out that doesn't involve just surviving like you can thrive as well all right, so the last question that I wanted to ask is coming back to the piece around freeze, right? Because I can't imagine how many women would freeze and then the way that, you know, things are structured at the moment and that's seen as um, that it's not clear that you are not consenting, um, as crazy as that is. And today we are releasing this episode on the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. So what do people need to know about this? Like, yeah, what do you what do people not know about this? Yeah, look, it's um it's it's mind-blowing, you know, sort of like like I said before, it's uh, a natural response to danger when there's no perceived way out, right? Mm-hmm. Like we know that. Um also if you've experienced complex trauma, so repetitive trauma over time, you might also be processing the current experience of, of violence based on past stimuli. And that mm. just completely overloads the body and it shuts down, right? So a lot of the work, um, I think, around freezing is really just to release um, that judgment and shame that comes along with that really, again, normal, understandable response to trauma. Um, We need to keep up momentum um, to make sure that it's interpreted in a way that actually supports people who have survived these things um, 
it is one in four, like we said before, like it's just so common. And the grief and confusion that comes from being assaulted by someone you love is just monumental. Um, it was certainly so, so much worse for me than anything else I had experienced before. Um, and I think it's really important, though, that, you know, we really can't talk about trauma without understanding that all therapeutic work is grief work. And a lot of the time you're grieving for what didn't happen, not about what did. So, you know, you're actually just uh, grieving for the fact that you didn't respond the way you wanted to, or that they didn't say anything, or there wasn't, you know, any consideration of your humanness in that moment, you know. Um, And I think when we think about the five stages of grief as well, like denial, anger, bargaining, um, depression, acceptance, um, that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross writes about, you know, we need to understand that uh, to understand trauma is to understand those uh, stages. And, you know, if we reflect on um, the kind of uh, entry points that people have into um, all therapeutic practice, whether it's talk therapy, um, go and see GP for mental health plan, kickboxing, whatever, you know, we have a better uh, grasp, I guess, on on how we can meet people throughout those stages, or what people might be experiencing, um, and the more um, the more language that we have around that, the better. Really, I mean, um, certainly for complex PTSD, um, it's not even in the DSM five. Like, there's not that recognition of the extra, um, you know levels of shit that people have to wade through when they've been consistently exposed to trauma over time or similar trauma. Um, And also, I guess, just to acknowledge that those labels are really fluid. Um, They can change. It doesn't lessen or negate anyone's experience. Like Oliver Sacks wrote a lot about this, about really um, uh, fully um, drilling down into the fact that there's no label that will ever encapsulate someone's lived experience someone's human experience but um sometimes uh you know those frameworks can be helpful but there's so much more to it than that as well yeah I think that's so helpful to think about like that the first stage is denial um Mm -hmm. because then when people are like oh why didn't you report in the beginning or like straight away why didn't you go to the the police officer da 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 it's like well in from the beginning I didn't want to believe that this happened right you also probably have a coercively controlling partner who tells you like no you wanted it you did like you know who knows what other narrative is going in like it seems so um natural that you know there might be a lag in being able to come forward and like say Mm. what had happened if Mm. you ever can Yeah, for sure. And I mean, look, with many women that I worked with, it was about really logistical things that they put above their own emotional well-being, like providing for their family, keeping their home, um, not being made homeless, uh, not um, pulling their kids out of school with no notice. I mean, people have really good reasons for not leaving. Um, And when it comes to those patriarchal power over structures, like a lot of the time there is also economic control. There's so many different elements that go into it. Um, I mean, uh, for me, I didn't want to let go of the life that I thought I had. Um, I didn't want to... um, I guess basically just come to terms with the fact that I thought I was safe and I really wasn't um, and that I really felt like I was a a kid again um, in many ways, a teenager, like just um, surviving and um, coming to terms with that took some time and and that's okay. That doesn't negate my experience. But 
um, there was definitely a lot of self-talk that I had to navigate to think like, you know, um, is this the case? And, you know, you gaslight yourself basically when you've, you've lived through um, that amount of trauma over time. But anyone can can do it you know like the the individual and the community power to be able to to move through these things is only um getting stronger i think yeah and i think like it's 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 worth noting too like on this day as as with on all days like if you suspect that somebody might not be safe at home you know, like uh, any of the things that we're, we're mentioning about coercive control or maybe like it's, and it's tough in the martial arts community, like everybody listening to this, like it's hard to see a bruise on someone and be like, oh, that's a bit strange because like we've all got bruises on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think is one of the powerful things about the community is that it's a space you can go into and not have to worry about do my clothes cover this and like am I about to be judged and is anyone going to say anything when I'm not ready to, but um, I think something really powerful is just asking if you're not sure, are you safe at home? Like mm, at the mm. very least someone's going to be like, mm, yes, um, absolutely. And you're just like, okay, no worries. But, you know, they might not do anything. They might not say anything, but it's just like some somebody's looking out for them and and they might even think, am I safe at home? And, yeah, and have, yeah. have not even considered that because like they've just been keeping themselves safe. But yeah. you're not thinking I'm unsafe, so I'm keeping myself safe. If if that makes sense, like r- really, mm. that's just your reality. That's what you used to like. That's what you've been conditioned to. So I think like I I, I really do want to use this platform to say that like um, a lot of women who go to martial arts have experienced domestic violence in the past. Mm. They're not necessarily in a trauma informed space because those just don't exist in high volume and numbers so it's it's very possible that you know your martial arts club is the next best thing and that's where they are maybe they're not safe yet um like you know you can just say like a safe at home yeah yeah exactly and it's so important just to even uh open that dialogue so that people know that you know you're aware of that because they might be right now but then they might not be at some stage you know Things can change really quickly sometimes. Um, and, you know, 1-800-RESPECT is a great resource for people living in Australia. I know you're going to put more resources in the show notes as well. Um, but, yeah, the the platform that I'm working on now is designed to um, just pull all information together for um, people who are navigating domestic, family violence, sexual assault, um, irrespective of where you're based. So hopefully I'll have more updates on that soon. Um I'm just, yeah, really looking forward to um, promoting, I guess, the the knowledge that is already out there and making it accessible for people because we can't talk about, um, you know, wellness and health and well-being until we have access set up first. 100%. And I think, like, if anyone kind of got a, a taste of, of the significance of, of what that means, you know, like trying to to make it really, really accessible for, for people to get help. Like I know what I'm like, um, when it comes to just like online shopping or things like that, like if there's a a slight thing in the customer experience for me, that is like slightly 
annoying, irritating. Like it's um, it's not in my language. It's not accessible to me. Like whatever it might be. I'm just like straight away not going to engage with that. And then mm-hmm. like for me, I think that's what your app is going to be about. It's going to be about mm-hmm. like removing those barriers of friction and just making it like so easy for absolutely everyone to mm-hmm. For, for that part of the process to be easy. Like it's already so, so hard to make the decision to get help, put yourself in danger to escape a situation, like all of these things that like the last thing you need is that like the tech and the website and the system is also difficult. Like that's, yeah. that's one barrier we can at least pull down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or just acknowledging that, uh, you know, people don't necessarily have the capacity or aren't even necessarily safe to sit and wade through the internet to find out what their options are. Not everyone is going to go to police and that's also okay. Um, Not everyone will go to a crisis service and that's also okay. And even just knowing um, that there's a community of people who understand what it's like or can empathise fully with you, not feeling safe in your body, feeling like you're under attack all the time. Like for me, it was very alienating in that way because I um, felt as if no one really understood um, what what was happening for me um, and that's why I had to, to take that time out and, and whatnot as well. But, you know, we can, we can build from that. We can, um, we can overcome we can we can overcome just like you did right like this is a story that is like like we said at the beginning it was going to be heavy like you've been through so so much and you are so so brave like um I'm really glad that we did a pre uh like a preparation for this this interview to to pull out and tease out your story because I think if I was hearing it all live on air like it it would possibly have been too much for me having having known you for so long through kickboxing because like um I feel a lot of anger at the system for the things that you've been through um but predominantly I'm just like so so proud of you for being able to come on here to tell your story you know despite how dis- how um how much discomfort comes with that with the hope that it would benefit just like one person who's listening which I think it absolutely will yeah absolutely thank you so much and thank you for providing the platform um that you know I felt comfortable to do that and that's really all I want to do I just want to you know um I want my takeaway I guess just to be that um women and anyone navigating violence just to know that they're whole as they are right now like there's no right or wrong point in time to connect if you choose to you can never be quote unquote too traumatized to do or try anything um doesn't matter what you've been through like there are people out there who have experienced similar and you know whether you're a cult survivor as well or um have you know navigating violence right now um yeah there's a program for you 100 percent and and you know we are getting access to new different types of funding I just had a new client come through on a brand new type of funding that didn't exist a week ago like all of the time so you like amazing you you really never know like I think the app will obviously be a great place to start once once it does exist but uh, I will liaise with you to put the perfect list of resources (laughs) in this for people to reach out and also to pass on to anyone because you know like as we said um you know, today is a really good prompt to have conversations, like sit with discomfort, make like mm-hmm. a little bit of a difference because you absolutely can on an individual level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have you thought of something to be grateful for today? 
What was it? I am grateful for the amazing women that train with me at the Fight Back Project. I'm grateful for Nari and the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. And I'm grateful for you for listening to this show and helping martial arts keep saving lives. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to leave me a review to help more people find the show, that's a bonus. shapes me but me don't gotta tell you what my name is i don't gotta explain it walk in the room hear a boom erupting like i'm famous i'm here shedding shells i'm shameless i fear nothing no complacence Many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one to power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience, meets power, meets gracious, meets. We're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifest enough collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection I could see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands I break all these bars, barriers and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle. All my experiences and reduce them to appearances When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances To fall down, mess up, and get myself back up I'm not looking for clovers cause I don't believe in luck Damn, you were badass, I heard them say it clearly Why thank you very much, I know now I'm not weary Of what's next for me cause I expect to see Growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be The positivity and accountability Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin Boundaries, I know them well, take a breath and meditate Who is she? I know her well, now I get to open gates One, two, one, two, I don't need your permission And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition To know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing And everything I do, that's me making decisions It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh?